ready, Bernie? You know it. All right, let's do it. Welcome, everyone, to Wolverheme Happy Hour. I'm Anthony Personati. And I'm Bernie Marini. We are hematology clinical pharmacists, and this is a podcast where we drink and we nerd out about data. Welcome back, everyone, to Wolverheme Happy Hour. Bernie, we got another guest today. Oh, yeah. It's a, and it's a great guest, too. We have uh, Charlie Fukar with us today, who's a leukemia uh, an MDS expert here at the University of Michigan. Charlie, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thanks so much for having me on, guys. Uh, it's really great to be on the podcast. I'm a huge fan. I know I've sent you both emails late at night just talking about how great the episodes are. So Aww. thanks for having me. Um, Charlie, you, yeah. were, you were actually our, you were our first fan. So we, we, <laughs> you were the we first sent you a, listener. Yeah, you, we sent you a copy of our first episode before it ever went live, just to make sure it wasn't hot garbage, and uh, you seemed to like it. So we're like, okay, well, we'll post it and see yeah. what happens. So thanks, Charlie. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, no, it's been it's been amazing. And I have to say, I think as far as podcasts go, your introductory song is number one <laughs> in my book. Thank you. We we wanted it to be lively and you know punky. It, it's uh, we're also you know in our thirties, so. Punk was a, a big thing back in our high school years, right? <laughs> I mean, we were originally going to do like a uh, a Taylor Swift cover, but oh, that would have been you know, so nice. good. It oh, wasn't nice. going to work out. We were worried about <laughs> we were worried about copyright infringement, especially if yeah. we're yelling "bad blood," you know. So yes, yes, exactly, exactly. I would say this one's way catchier. It really gets you pumped up. <laughs> it's uh, <good. laughs> so, Charlie, tell us a little bit uh, about yourself and your journey and and what you do. Um, so I graduated from fellowship about uh, 11 months ago. I trained here at the University of Michigan. Um, you guys were instrumental in my education as well as uh, Dale, Kristen, and Patrick. Um, so I am a hematologist. I'm split 50% benign heme and 50% malignant heme. Um, so I do uh, leukemia clinic one day a week and then uh, benign hematology one day a week as well. So I'm kind of a general hematologist, but my passion and research interests are in uh, AML. Awesome. And where before you came to us, where did you come from for residency and, and medical school? I did residency in medical school in uh, Chicago at Northwestern. Um, and then actually I did one year as a nocturnist, as a hospitalist. Uh, basically did mostly uh, BMT uh, nocturnist nice. as well as uh, sort of the red service and oncology service equivalent over at Northwestern. Um, so, and then, yeah, I decided to move to Michigan after that and Ann Arbor has been great. So all, all in Chicago. So that, that explains your drink today, doesn't it? So let's talk about our drinks. <laughs> Charlie, what do you, what'd you bring us today? Um, so I am drinking a Lagunitas IPA, a classic. Uh, so good. Delicious. Uh, we did the brewery tour in Chicago, and it was really amazing before we left. So it was really, really delicious. Is, is that the brewery that has like a weird entrance and like weird lights and stuff? Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah, and it's, cool. it's uh, I think their main claim to fame is there's the scene and uh, the dark night, I think, where you they light yeah. a huge pile of money on fire. And that scene was actually filmed, if I remember correctly, in the enormous Lagunitas warehouse. What? No yeah. way. I didn't know that. That's so cool. Yeah. It's really, 
so it's it's kind of interesting. It's on the west side of Chicago and kind of this very industrial warehousey yes. district area. So. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I, the first time I went there, I jumped in an Uber and I was like, "Where are you taking us?" <laughs> <laughs> I was scared for my life. <laughs> I've never been there. Oh, maybe, maybe this weekend it, I'll check it out. Ask oh, yeah. Me. Yeah, Bernie, what are you drinking, Bernie? Oh, I have uh, one of my home brews, and this is mm. the very first home brew I did. Um, and it's a chocolate stout, but it's not that great. It had a lot of hype. <laughs> People were very excited. Uh, but this was during COVID when I started brewing beer, and I realized I had all the ingredients uh, except one of the ingredients to like generate more of a mouthfeel. Uh, so I brewed it without it because it was middle of COVID. I wasn't going to go to the store and I really wanted beer. So I just brewed it. So it's, uh, it had a lot of hype, but it's not that good. So I, uh, I named it Vixios. Uh, <laughs> so that's the name of this beer. Uh, <laughs> oh my God. I love it. <laughs> it's not purple though. It's, uh, it's a dark color, but that's what it's named today. And cause we're doing a, a leukemia episode here, I thought it'd be very fitting. I love it. I love it. So today uh, I got, uh, I'm drinking red wine today. Contrary <laughs> to everybody's belief that I only like white wine. I, I actually love red wine. So I'm drinking a, a Spanish red wine. It's a Rioja uh, 2014. They usually age it in an American oak. Um, I would say it is the most cost effective uh, type of wine because, you know, a lot of people love their cabs and whatnot. But for the price, uh, I would say Riojas are some of the best. Spanish wines are some of the best wines out there. So, and we we also have a lot of Spanish listeners too. Um, so, cheers cheers to all of them as well. So, anyways, Bernie, what's on the agenda for today? So today we're going to talk about uh, the new FDA approval of ivocidinib in newly diagnosed AML, and Uh-oh. we're going to talk about the the Agile study. And Charlie's going to help walk us through this data. Uh, mm-hmm. And get us through these things. So, so why don't we just why don't we just jump right into it? Mm-hmm. And it's caused a lot of hype too, right? Like I know you guys have been off of Twitter for a while. <laughs> I don't know where you've been, Bernie, but I've been following everybody. You know, uh, Aaron Goodman, aka Papa Heem, has been you know all over the the, the Twitter, uh, sending out Twitter. tweets about this. Uh, I don't know what the proper terminology of Twitter is. Anyways, <laughs> I just follow people and learn from them. Um, but you know, Papahim has been uh, really on the case of this study. A lot of really awesome mm-hmm. points. Uh, within hours of this study being published, Vinay Prasad uh, mm-hmm. jumped on YouTube uh, and and presented some some issues with it. And I <clears throat> I accidentally woke up in the middle of the night and and you know just was surfing YouTube and Twitter, and I saw it and I was like, oh, I got to watch this. Bad idea. I was so so hyped up after it because like, oh my god these are awesome points the, yeah. you know I, I couldn't fall back asleep so anyway so i i am already biased by the two of them yeah. so i'm going to try my best not to give uh, i'll play the contrarian throughout this um, bernie and charlie i know you you've purposely not uh tried to see other people's comments so that you have a, a pure uh, perspective on this study so anyways just just want to throw yeah. it out there a lot of hype for this yeah i saw i saw a lot of the hype and, and i saw when the episode came out and you were hyped up i think i woke up <laughs> to like four text messages yeah. about the podcast <laughs> so i i was, I was like you know what purposely i'm going to develop my own opinion i'm going to yeah. see what the study's about and we're going to cover it as well so i don't say the exact same thing as some very smart people Yep. So we can we can go ahead and get started maybe with a little bit of a, a background. Um, so let's talk about uh, IDH mutations in AML. Um, I think in general they occur in about you know 10 to 20 percent 
of AML cases. Um, if you look at the ECOG 1900 data, uh, IDH1 mutations were present in about 6 to 7% of patients, and IDH2 was present in about 8% of patients. Um, it tends to occur more frequently in cytogenetically normal AML, and these patients tend to be a little bit older, but with lower white counts at presentation. And it tends to co-occur with uh, NPM1 mutations, which we know in general are favorable risk mutations. So that kind of, you know, sets the stage. Um, prognostically, I mean, what do you guys think about IDH mutations in prognostic? I've always thought of them as agnostic in terms of prognosis. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could find studies where they're associated with poor prognosis. Um, in contrast, you find studies where patients with NPM1 mutations and IDH mutations do really well, like the Patel paper. So mm -hmm. I think it's it's all over the map. Yeah, no, for sure. Especially, you remember before we adopted ELN, mm -hmm. uh, NCCN had their risk stratification and NPM1 Right, was only favorable if you had an IDH. Was wasn't that, that the case? I, that was from the uh, that was from the Patel New England the Journal Patel paper, the 20, right. 2012 paper. But people were slow to adopt that slash didn't adopt that, right? Because I think there's some German data that shows the exact opposite: NPM1 right. positive, IDH positive do poorly. It's still better yeah. than our poor risk AMLs, but they do a little bit worse. So it's it's not consistent. It's, so at least that's like what I've seen. Sounds like we don't know if it's favorable or or not. I don't know, Charlie, en enlighten us. What are we missing? <laughs> I, I totally agree. <clears throat> I think that um, this is a consequence of us being early in the molecular era. I've mm -hmm. noticed this a lot whenever you have a patient and you see a mutation and you go to the literature to try to decide if this is good or bad. Um, there is a lot of gray area. There are certainly mutations that are resoundingly bad and mutations mm -hmm. that are resoundingly good. Um, but often you find yourself in a little bit of gray area. And even prepping for this podcast, you could see that people had opinions in one mm -hmm. way or the other, and it was completely in incongruous. Very interesting. So Bernie, having an IDH mutation, what does that do? Like how, what's the pathogenesis here in AML? So biologically, this takes us back to basically uh, high school biology. I don't know, what were you in, uh, you know, grade grade six or something in Canada, <laughs> Anthony, <laughs> when you when you learn this? Uh, so this goes back to the, uh, the Krebs cycle, everybody's favorite cycle they had to memorize uh, in school. Um, but essentially, Mutations in isocitrate dehydrogenase, or IDH. Um, this is an enzyme that acts as a, a homodimer, and it converts uh, isocitrate to alpha-ketoglutarate. So it's isocitrate dehydrogenase. That's the, the name of the enzyme. Um, so normally, this alpha-ketoglutarate, it's a substrate for a whole bunch of different enzymes, including uh, enzymes like TET2 um, and other uh, enzymes that control the epigenetics of the cell. Um, and so what these do is they lead to hypomethylation of promoter regions so that genes can be expressed. But when you have a mutation, and typically these are heterozygous mutations, so the enzyme exists as a heterodimer where one, one part is functional and one part is dysfunctional. And that dysfunctional IDH, instead of converting uh, isocitrate to alpha-ketoglutarate, converts isocitrate to 2-hydroxyglutarate. And this 2-hydroxyglutarate, or 2-HG, it looks structurally you know, very similar to alpha-ketoglutarate. So it binds to all those enzymes that use it as a cofactor, 
and it shuts off their activity. So it inhibits things like TET2, um, other, other genes that are important like lysine demethylases. And so essentially what you get is DNA hypermethylation because these enzymes aren't working. And so what that leads to is a, a block in differentiation because the normal genes aren't being expressed and these cells are stuck in differentiation because of that buildup of 2-hydroxyglutarate. So it's, it's kind of a cool mechanism mm -hmm. of action. It makes sense why these cells are, are stuck in differentiation. I love when you uh, bring like massively challenging topics and you bring them down to a really nice level. And for the, the listeners that didn't understand that, go back and re-listen re to it like 10 times. Because yeah. this, this, I mean, this is the pharmacology and in, in, in biochemistry is so interesting. So, so Bernie, if, if that's what's happening when you have an IDH mutation, how do our IDH mm. inhibitors work? So they bind uh, to the mutant portion of the enzyme and inhibit the mutant IDH. So then you have that normal allele that's still present and is able to produce alpha-ketoglutarate. So then you restore all of these enzymes that depend on alpha-ketoglutarate and lead to more DNA hypomethylation and more genes being expressed. So then these cells can undergo differentiation. Mm -hmm. You remember uh, back, uh, it was probably about six, seven, eight years <laughs> ago, our, the, the a a was the AACR? Yeah. or presentation and you and I saw oh, this and we're like, wow, these the drugs, thing ever. This, this is amazing. The Krebs cycle and look at the activity. We we're just so pumped for patients uh, back for, then. For so. those first like two, three years yeah. after that, our residents basically had to memorize it yeah. because we oh, thought yeah. it was so cool. So we made them draw it out and everything. Uh, mm -hmm. I know, I know residents like Lydia and others are probably getting PTSD yep. right now. <laughs> Former so, residents. <laughs> So what's, what's interesting about IDH mutations is that IDH inhibitors are not the only drugs that, that work very well for these uh, patients. Also, uh, BCL2 inhibitors work very well in IDH mutated uh, patients. And you, you kind of wonder, well, well, how is that possible? So Bernie brought up the Krebs cycle. Well, going back to, this is probably grade, grade 11 biology now, um, <laughs> the electron transport chain. You, you guys remember that. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so venetoclax works within the mitochondrion, right? So it, venetoclax will increase the, um, the membrane, outer membrane uh, permeability and then cause apoptosis. So what happens when you have uh, too much 2-hydroxyglutarate, which Bernie mentioned, is a byproduct of having an IDH mutation. Too much 2-hydroxyglutarate actually uh, inhibits the last phase of the electron transport chain, complex 4, or... Uh, cytochrome uh, C oxidase. So remember that uh, is supposed to take some oxygen and some uh, water and uh, create some hydrogen molecules. And eventually you're going to just get some ATP. So when you inhibit cytochrome C oxidase, you create an environment that mimics oxygen deprivation. So then the cell's like, oh, I don't have oxygen. I, you know, I have no energy. I have no ATP. I want to die. So what ends up happening is the cell upregulates back and backs, which is, uh, you know, those two uh, cell mediators of death in the BCL2 pathway. Uh, those are the two agents that are going to cause the increased cell uh, outer cell membrane of the mitochondrion to be more permeable. But the cell is smart enough and is like, well, you know what, I, I have BCL2 around. I'm just going to grab backs and back with BCL2. 
2 and I'm not going to cause apoptosis. Well, what you have now is a cell that is incredibly primed. If you add any more BCL2 uh, memetics, the cell's just going to explode. And that's exactly what happens, and that's the proposed mechanism of venetoclax. So you throw in a, a BH3 uh, memetic, and backs and back are released, and then you get um, more uh, of the, the membrane being uh, permeable, and then you cause apoptosis. So very, 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 very uh, sensitive to BCL2 inhibition. So when we talk about IDH mutations and IDH inhibitors, uh, the other therapies that we talk about aren't just therapies, you know, that are other therapies that just work in AML. We're talking about a therapy, venetoclax, that these cells are exquisitively sensitive to. That's another great summary. So <laughs> now I think we've totally killed the background. Um, yeah. So this is let's great. Move We're gonna, let's, let's, <laughs> let's move on to some data now, because uh, I think everybody's hungry for data. So maybe Charlie can walk us through uh, some of the initial data with these IDH inhibitors and, and kind of where we were at at a baseline before the Agile study kind of came out. <clears throat> yeah, certainly. I think the one other thing too uh, that I would add that I think is fascinating about the stories that you guys told in the background um, from IDH1 inhibition is that it was found early on that TET2 mutations and IDH1 mutations were mutually exclusive. And that was mm -hmm. kind of how they reverse engineered the pathway, which is, I find to be so interesting. Oh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, in terms of data, <clears throat> so I'll start with, you know, every oncologic approval begins in the relapse refractory <laughs> setting and AML is no different. <laughs> so this, uh, this drug was first studied in patients and the uh, paper was published in 2018 in the New England Journal. And basically they looked at patients who were IDH1 mutated um, in the relapse refractory setting, as I said, who were not eligible for intensive induction chemotherapy. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about that, it, what that definition means and kind of how it's defined uh, from an objective standpoint when we're talking more about the Agile study. But um, it was basically a combination of age and comorbidities, usually age greater than or equal to uh, 75. Um, and so, you know, because this was a phase one um, open label study, you know, they started with a dose escalation phase um, and they were looking for the maximum tolerated dose of ivocitinib. And eventually they arrived upon 500 milligrams a day. And it's actually interesting because when you look at the way that they decided on the dosage, it actually wasn't the maximum tolerated dose. It was um, going back to our mechanistic studies, they decided on 500 milligrams based on the levels of 2-hydroxyglutarate, 2-hydroxyglutarate oh. um, hmm. that, uh, that have been measured kind of in the day 14 range. Gotcha. So what do they want, like 90, 95% suppression of 2-hydroxyglutarate uh, or some sort of surrogate of that? Exactly, exactly. And so they, what they, basically how they reported in the paper is that in um, at steady state at 14 days, they had maximum inhibition of 2-hydroxyglutarate in the plasma and bone marrow in patients who were receiving 500 milligrams daily, and escalated doses didn't make any difference in terms right. of that suppression. That's, I mean, that's the way we should be studying drugs, not max tolerated dose. It should be max sort of effective-ish dose. Cool. And so kind of high level, uh, patients were treated with 500 milligrams of ivocitinib daily, 
And they had an overall response rate of around 41.6% and a complete response rate of 21.6%. Um, and so kind of before we jump into some of the side effects, what, have, what are some of the things that you guys have noticed with uh, you know, IDH1 inhibitors and some of the clinical considerations that we need to look at when we're thinking about treating patients? You know, my experience as a single agent, um, very well tolerated, right? Especially these are these are older patients, um, but there are some toxicities that we certainly need to be aware of. Uh, the first one is differentiation syndrome, um, and this was uh, something that you know was unheard of outside of APL with arsenic and, and atra, right? So this was kind of a new phenomenon in AML, and it's also a little bit different. Uh, at least as a single agent of, you have no idea when the heck it was going to happen, right? Mm -hmm. It could happen uh, when you start therapy. It could happen a month later. It could, I, I think like the median, I don't remember this study, but it was something like weird, like, you know, 95 days later. It's like, I can't watch a patient 95 days for their differentiation syndrome to just happen. Um, so, you know, it just required a lot of additional education of patients about, you know, uh, measuring their weight, looking at their feet, you know, looking for fluid overload, stuff like that. So uh, differentiation syndrome was definitely one that's a little unique. And I think like what you said, you can't predict when it's going to occur. I think that speaks no. to how long it takes these patients to respond. Mm -hmm. I think like median time response was like two months or something. Right. And that's mm -hmm. like first response, like CRs took, you know, up to three, four months. And you know, some people are responding like six months later, six, eight months later. So it's a slower acting agent that, you know, in general is pretty well tolerated, except for that differentiation syndrome, which makes sense based on the cool mechanisms we talked about. Mm -hmm. um, and Bernie, are yeah. there, uh, so we have enositinib, the IDH2 inhibitor, and then uh -huh. we've got ivocitinib, which, you know, obviously confuses the heck out of everybody because they sound the same and you never know which one's IDH1 or 2, but yeah. they're not identical, right? even though they sound pretty similar, there's, slight, what are, there's some slight differences in the toxicity, right? Yeah, I think the key thing uh, I think about is enosidinib causes uh, hyperbilirubinemia yep. because it inhibits uh, UGT1A1. Uh, yep. Ivocidinib does not inhibit UGT1A1, but it does cause QT prolongation. Um, so that's something to, to monitor for those patients. I think the weird thing uh, sort of thinking about pharmacokinetics with IVO is yeah. not only is it a CYP3 or 4 substrate, like literally every freaking drug in oncology, yep. um, but it's also a CYP3 a 4 inducer, which I think has massive Ooh. implications for yeah. if you're going to put people on, you know, antifungals and other agents, it induces uh -huh. CYP3 a 4. Or if you want to try to combine it with or other therapies that you shouldn't drug. be doing, yeah. uh, which we will not talk about right now. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> uh, uh don't do it. Um, so anyway, so that's some of the, uh, the the side effects. Charlie, then, so that was the um, the relapse refractory data, but this drug is also approved, not just in the relapse refractory setting as a single agent, but it's also approved in the frontline setting. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, study design. So the... Data supporting upfront use uh, was published in Blood in 2020 um, by Robos et al. Um, and essentially, what they used was a similar. They're they're using a sub cohort of patients from the original trial, um, mm -hmm. the Phase One trial, and they looked at 34 patients who met inclusion criteria who were newly diagnosed with an IDH1 uh, mutation. 
And so this was a single arm study um, subject to the same uh, dose escalation that I already talked about, arriving at 500 uh, milligrams daily. And basically, there were 34 patients um, who were treated with ivocitinib. Um, as I said, they had to be the same cohort of patients and that for uh, reasons related to age or comorbidities, they were not fit for intensive chemotherapy. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty small number of, of patients. Um, and essentially, you know, some of the things that are, are worth noting in the cohort, I would say, is that, you know, in terms of overall response rates and things like that, so the overall response rate was about 54%, 54.5%, um, and the CR rate was around 30.3%. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I think that, um, you know, there, there's a lot of similar toxicities that we're seeing in the, in the relapse refractory setting, including QTC prolongation, differentiation mm -hmm. syndrome that we talked about. And I, I thought one of the interesting comments, we talked about this with differentiation syndrome, but how late it can occur. Yeah. So differentiation syndrome occurred up to 82 days. Yeah, after see, I was there. close. I said like 90, <laughs> I don't know. I threw out a number, but wow, 80 something days. That's, that's crazy. That's nuts. Yeah. It's a long time to monitor a patient. Um, and it, I think the other thing that's kind of interesting about uh, when you look at this trial, some of the other points that I will make that are based, I hate to you know, give advice via anecdote, but there's a swimmer's plot from this, from this trial. It's figure 1A, um, where there do appear to be a small cohort of patients for whatever reason appear to be very long-term responders. Mm -hmm. A lot of the patients have very short uh, times of response, did not respond, things of that nature. But there is a fraction of patients, you know, it looks like one of the patients has been on treatment and in a CR for 42 months and things like that. Wow. Um, and so I personally have, you know, one or two patients that were placed on an IDH1 inhibitor and have had very, very long remissions, which is kind of interesting, even though oh, kind of on average, the overall survival was around 12.6 months in this single arm study. Charlie, do we know anything, well, one about your patient, but also in these studies, is there co-occurring mutations? Are there, you know, variant allele frequencies, anything that predicts who is going to be that long-term responder? Because if we can figure out, because it's probably only like 10%, right? Yes. That's that's your money shot right there, right? Not the, the rest that are probably going to have no response or, or very short response. Any, any inclination of who those patients are? Yeah, I think that... Um, there's a there's another figure in this blood paper, figure four, which I think is really telling. Um, and they look at the molecular breakdown of patients between those who achieved a CR, CRH, and non-responders. And there's kind of a striking absence of uh, patients with co-occurring co receptor tyrosine kinase mutations mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. patients who responded versus non-responders. And I think in theory, um, one of the resistance mechanisms is just another kinase that's driving proliferation right. and things like that. And so um, I do think that that's very striking. But one of the things that has been seen across all of these studies, which I don't have a good handle on why this is true, 
is that the variant allele frequency of IDH1 does not seem to predict uh, response to therapy, which is very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah, that that is that was striking to me. And, you know, one of our fellows, Aaron Krupp, gave an awesome presentation on resistance um, in AML. And one of the things that she presented to our group was that patients, like to your point, any receptor tyrosine kinase mutations, much less uh, uh, response rate. So that would include like FLT3 or any activating mutation of the RAS pathway or MAPK pathway. Um, and so she, she showed us some data that NRAS patients virtually like majority of them don't mm-hmm. respond. And then there's the, the P2P, uh, N11, 0% of patients responded. So there's probably some subsets. I think there's a lot f- more for us to learn. Um, so lots more for us to learn from an IDH perspective. Um, but here we go and we're just going to move towards a phase three. And so this is kind of where we cue the agile study, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the question that we need to answer here. Let's just be clear. Ivocitinib is FDA-approved in the frontline setting as a single agent. It is approved in the United States as a second-line agent as well. So the question today that we need to answer is, you know, whether or not Ivocitinib used in a combination with azacitidine is better than azacitidine by itself followed by the standard of care FDA-approved uh, agent um, uh, ivocitinib. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk through whether or not we're actually answering the question that we need to answer that's clinically applicable, um, you know, at the time of this study. So anyways, so the Agile study, this was a, um, a multi-sender, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled phase three. It had all the bells and whistles of a very, very perfectly well-designed study on the surface. Um, it was mostly conducted outside of the United States. There's only uh, ultimately two patients and two centers that enrolled in the United States. To, to Charlie and, and Bernie, do you guys see any issues with you know, um, taking data from Europe or Asia or wherever um, and applying that data uh, into, into the United States? Because I know, you know recently there was, a, I think it was an immunotherapy from China that the FDA um, did not approve mainly just because it wasn't done in the United States. So is that something that you guys think is an issue or should we be able to adopt things that happen outside of the United States as well? I I think if biologically we feel AML is the same here as elsewhere, we should be able to rely on that data. Where I think it gets tricky is what you said earlier when you introduced this and you said, (laughs) is this better than standard of care, which is, you know, whatever we're comparing it to, followed by the standard of care. So you just have to make sure that in whatever country you're studying it in is what patients or are what patients going to get after is that exactly the same as what we would do. And so is it externally valid in the United States? But I think from a design standpoint, perfectly okay with with that as long as those other things are are true, which maybe we'll we'll get to. (laughs) Yeah, I totally agree. I think that... um, you know, AML is interesting because it is treated so differently in other countries, especially yeah. in Europe, you know, double inductions and mm-hmm. things like that. And I've had a lot of discussions with, uh, for example, Dale, a lot of the MRD testing comes out of Europe. And so mm-hmm. you are comparing a little bit apples to oranges when you have different available therapies um, in other countries and different philosophical approaches. I would say the other thing too is that sometimes in oncology we don't have a good explanation but 
things are just tolerated differently in other other places, whether or not Mm -hmm. that has to do with medical comorbidities or, um, you know, pharmacogenomic differences. Yeah, pharmacogenomic differences. Um, And but I, I would say for the most part, I don't think we should take the stance that, you know, if it's not if it's not purely studied in the United States, then we can't use it. Mm-hmm. Nope, it, it does make you, it does make you wonder why, you know, why, <laughs> why not study yeah. in the U S and, and we'll get to probably the, the why, uh, in a little bit, but just speaking to kind of basic study design stuff, I think a couple of things that I like that they did talking about inclusion criteria, these patients had to have an IDH one mutation and they were unfit for chemotherapy and maybe, Charlie can walk us through some of the specifics of that. Um, but I thought their definition for unfit was was fairly broad. I don't, I don't know. What did you think, Charlie? Yeah, I, I think, you know, this is a big controversy um, mm-hmm. in AML right now. And I think even some of the early studies that we were talking about, some of the patients, uh, I think it may have been the frontline study. I, I'd have to go back and look. But about 10% of them went on to allotransplant. <laughs> and so, you know, we, we see this with all the trials who that study patients who are, quote, ineligible for intensive induction chemotherapy. And I think in the clinic, it's a hard judgment call a lot of times. Mm-hmm. You're sort of sitting there really trying to use objective markers when there aren't a lot of um, helpful measures to guide you in the gray zone. Yeah. So. I think they at least did a good job of trying to objectively quantify who is ineligible, Mm -hmm. but I agree, it's still really vague. So if you read about it, they say, you know, defined by age 75 years or older. Um, I think even age is difficult at this point. Um, I mean, my, my mom is going on 75 and she does, you know, Ironman triathlon. So (laughs) I think, you know, even the age itself, it should be more biologic age. I think everyone agrees. But then, shout, shout out to Charlie's mom. I hope yeah, she's I was just listening. Say that. <laughs> we love you, mom. <laughs> I mean, I give them credit. They actually enrolled people with poor renal function, poor hepatic oh, yeah. function. Like in the U.S., yep. they'd never have that trial. Mm-hmm. Um, the Venetoclax data doesn't have these patients in the trial, yeah. right? So. I, I do think I give them credit, although, you, like you said, some things are vague. Severe cardiac disorder can just be somebody with angina, or it could be somebody who has, you know, reduced EF. And we don't get a great breakdown of, yeah. you know, which of these criteria were these patients meeting. We have some performance status breakdown, but it doesn't really get into that, you know, nitty gritty of how sick these patients actually were. And I thought there was an interesting comment in there when they go through like screening failures, a lot of the screening failures were people who were too sick to get therapy, right? Oh, really? I, mi- I yeah, missed that. Yeah. I, I so thought the were... screen failures are mostly oh. because they didn't have an IDH mutation. Well, some was that, right? But then they say um, in certain patients, they had immediate life-threatening or severe complications of leukemia. And so they weren't oh, enrolled. That's it, that's the, <laughs> the yeah. entry criteria that makes them unfit for chemotherapy, right? right? You got that sick patient in the unit with AKI. That's a severe life-threatening complication where they didn't enroll that patient. But Mm -hmm. technically, per their inclusion criteria, you could have enrolled them, they would have been eligible. So it is a Mm -hmm. little bit misleading, I think. And Mm -hmm. unless we're, you know, have all the data, it's hard to say exactly um, how sick these patients were. Mm -hmm. And I think the fact that you have to test for IDH probably makes these patients less sick, right? I mean, I think Charlie brought up that point when we were talking about this before. You know, 
every, we struggle with this on the inpatient setting. I mean, sometimes, you know, these mutations coming in, they come to you for a second opinion, they had it on their bone marrow biopsy on the outside. And sometimes, you know, but in the, in the patients who are newly diagnosed, um, you know, that information doesn't come for some time. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of the issues with targeted therapies in the frontline setting are that waiting period. Um, And it really, I think, selects for less sick patients. Um, I pulled up the supplementary appendix and the enrollment window is one month. And they also, the the screening window, I should say, and patients were also tested for IDH1 before the they were allowed to pre-screen for IDH1 mutations before the screening window opened. Wow. So, you know, you think to yourself, there are certainly patients on MHE, our leukemia service, who are sitting around kind of waiting mm-hmm. for their test results to come back. Not much is happening versus the patients that you know, you're putting out fires every day, you're trying to cytoreduce and, and it really makes you wonder who enrolls in these trials and, and kind of broadly speaking, the, the drawbacks of targeted therapies in the first line setting. Mm-hmm. Probably not going to enrich in those patients that we talked about previously who are going to be resistant, those with tyrosine kinase, receptor, yeah, yeah, receptor uh, kinase mutations, right? So Mm -hmm. FLT3 gone, NRAS, (laughs) all the MAPK, you know, all all that in the trial, (laughs) all the really, you know, aggressive ones all gone. So, um, all right. So that was a good discussion about, so, so probably a population that's a little bit more enriched than, you know, you would think, but it's a clinical trial, right? This happens. Yeah. It, it just, that's the reality of a clinical trial. They're always better than your, your real world patients. Um, so this study, again, um, the, they compared ivocitinib 500 milligrams a day with azacitidine versus azacitidine by itself. Uh, patients, uh, continued on these every 28 day cycles for a minimum of six cycles uh, unless they relapsed, they had disease progression. Um, I don't know the difference between relapse or disease progression, but <laughs> it sounds the same to me. Anyways, uh, unacceptable toxic effects or death occurred. Uh, I guess, Charlie, l- let me ask you. So let's say you're treating, um, well, first of all, let's talk about what is our standard of care? <laughs> I mean, this is, this is an obvious one. What is our standard of care in the United States right now? Uh, for for a patient who's say 80 years old, 75 years old uh, with AML. So if they're if they meet the criteria to enter this trial, I think everyone would be considering an Azaven combination at this point. Yeah. Um, yep. uh, certainly, and I I think that some of the things that are interesting that um, we should note as well is when you look at the. VLA study. I actually don't know how to say that out loud. Is that how they? Viale? <laughs> I, <don't know. laughs> I always say Viale. Yeah. Viale. Viale. But all right, we're we're going with it. Um, Perfect. You know, I I think that it, the subgroup analysis of IDH1 mutated patients. I don't want to dive into this too soon. Um, but you know, dive in, probably... Charlie. Dive right in, and I guarantee you, everybody <laughs> yeah. is thinking to themselves, "Viali, Viali." How do I say that? I was thinking the same thing. I have no idea how to say it. So thanks, Charlie, for being bold. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it, it's interesting to me because um, you know, certainly we talk about the standard of care of Aza plus Ven, um, 
But it is really tricky in this patient population because they do so well. The IDH1 mm -hmm. and 2 mutated patients um, in the subgroup analyses, I think it's interesting because uh, from the purposes of analyzing this trial, they do the worst with single agent ASA um, yes. in that subgroup yes. analysis. <laughs> and then they appear to do the best with the combination of, or I shouldn't say the best, but they appear to do very well, really well. the combination. Um, so the, the, this is a certain population where single agent ASA is certainly fraught with potentially mm -hmm. bad outcomes. Um, yep. And, and by, by really good, so the CR rate was 75% with Azaven versus 11% with azacitidine alone. So obviously this is subgroup analysis, you know, we, there's, there's issues with that, right? We have no idea if these patients are balanced. Um, there's other data from, you know, MD Anderson that recapitulates this, um, you know, with the high, high risk CR rates, um, for IDH and, and the biology also, as I described, that was the whole reason why I described the biology is to show that there is a biological rationale of why these patients would be so exquisitively sensitive, uh, to Ven. Uh, and then the median overall survival in that study was about 25 months, right, uh, for Azaven with uh, an IDH uh, mutation. So, and and I love that, and and we probably won't get there, but in the discussion section where they compare the Azaven data, they say, well, the CR rate with Azaven is only 28 percent. Um, oh, an boy, IDH. like that is the I... most cherry picking hashtag medical writing you oh. will ever see right there. Did they really do that? <laughs> they 100% did oh, it. Oh, no, that's so wrong. <laughs> that's not even the general, the general population had a, a CR rate of well, it was know, like CRCRI, right? Yeah. So they just Ooh. decided to pick out the CR oh. rate. It's, it says published small pooled data sets of subgroups of patients with IDH1 mutated AML who received Ven plus Ada indicated a CR rate of 28%. Oh, come on. Get out of here. <laughs> That's such just unfair. Okay. Let's just, you know, be honest. Okay. Anyways, let's, let's, uh, it was an excellent tangent, Charlie. We appreciate it. That's why we brought you on here. Um, so where I was going with this was actually, I started the tangent because I was like, you know, did you, what's, what are you actually treating patients with? But what I was going to ask you, Charlie, is, you know, before Aza Ven and you're using just Aza or Decidabine, would you wait six cycles and just keep hammering your patient through six cycles of azacitidine before you would say, oh, you know what, this is not working? Uh, how, how did you approach that? Yeah, I, I agree. I was a little surprised by the six cycles as well. Um, I, I think certainly sort of the dogma that we're taught in fellowship is you usually give an HMA about three to four cycles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Certainly it's wrong to bail too early, um, but I, yes. I do Good worry point. you're going to continue to have toxicity. Um, and so if you're not getting a response and you're just continuing to give up to six cycles, um, I, I think certainly that is a design issue whereby you could subject patients to uh, toxicity from the treatment without real hope of benefit once you get further along the line. And, and this study enrolled from March 2018, right, to like 2021? Yes. So, yes. so I want you guys to guess when Venetoclax got accelerated approval for HMA plus Ven in the frontline setting. Guess. Uh, I mean, we were using it 
during the phase two, uh-huh. right? Back in like 20, what, 2014, 2015? It was a little little farther. So th- this but then was... accelerated approval would have been later because yeah. we were using it before it was approved. Yeah. I remember yeah. that. God, it, oh, it's got to be like still 2018. It wasn't more than four years ago, right? 20, yeah. November? December of 2018. No, Yeah, wow. November oh. of 2018. <laughs> You're a wizard. So <laughs> November of 2018, it got accelerated approval. November of 2018. And when so did they start are... the trial? In March of 2018. Oh, yeah. so it's right there. Yeah. So, but but so this... still, like at that point, you got a question: What am yep. I doing? Yeah. No, totally. So the the point that you just brought up, uh, Vinay Prasad brought up on his YouTube. He's got a beautiful timeline of like literally when it was accelerated approval. When did they uh-huh. start the trial? When did they change their endpoints and blah blah. Like you, his timeline. You got to watch the visual. It's it's okay. awesome. So you brought up the perfect. We're going to call you uh, Bernie Prasad today because that was excellent. <laughs> we're, di- we're different people. We're different people. <laughs> but, so. but it is, it brings up a fair question, which is that, you know, in terms of trial oversight, you really have to have equipoise. Like, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. is it fair in February of 2021 to enroll a patient where they have a 50% chance of getting randomized to single agent AZA? and say, you know, there's equipoise in this situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so let me ask you guys this, though. So you just started this trial. You're like, you know, eight months deep into this trial. You're enrolling patients. All of a sudden, a new standard of care comes out. You can't just stop all of your trials, right, to then... Because, like, how, how would you do that? You would... All the patients that you already enrolled, are they part of the analysis? Do you just say, you know what, sorry, bye-bye, you're not part of our analysis. We're just going to, you know, change... Our, our treatment, um, our, our control arm, or do you just stop the study and waste all the money that you had with the upfront costs and just say, well, you know what, it's no longer a relevant question. I'm just going to stop um, and then just start a new study. Like, how would you actually, like, if you were part of the, the, the pharmaceutical company, how, like, is that a reasonable ask for them to just halt their study? I don't think it's, I don't think it's reasonable to just halt, but I think it's reasonable to say, oh, balls this isn't good uh i need to really think about this and then you know let's hope that the hma Venn data doesn't pan out right let's hope that that's not really standard of care because that's just accelerated yeah. approval True. right but then vl or vla gets published <laughs> and you're like god damn it uh, then i think you've got to really ask yourself what the hell am i doing and you've got yeah. to probably stop the trial at that point or you know you could say let's just change the endpoints or something and uh you know stop enrolling people and call today <laughs> yeah. I, uh. I i think it's a fair point um you know we're uh, you know, Dale and I are still trying to get our trial off the ground. And right. I, I do want to be sensitive to how much effort it takes mm-hmm. to the cost, the getting through all the regulatory issues. You know, it's it's not, it's certainly not easy. Um, but I, I do agree with Bernie. Once the once there is a superior treatment out there, you have an ethical obligation that you can't you can't randomize to an inferior mm-hmm. therapy and one that especially does particularly poorly in your patient population. Mm-hmm. Um, so can I think I, at I, that point you, you're stuck. Can I? I'm going to play uh, my my role today is again playing devil advocate. Whether or not I believe my points or not, I'm going to play it. <laughs> yeah. So 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 to, to kind of push on that point of you know uh, moral ethical obligation. 
this study was done in, in Europe, not in the United States. So yes, those individual, those two centers uh, in the US should stop enrolling, absolutely. They should close their trial there. But in Europe, they don't have access to venetoclax. So their standard of care is still azacitidine. So they don't have any ethical uh, obligation at all, right? They're, they're actually, it would be less ethical for them to close the study because like when, when I practice in Canada for, the, for a bit, the only way to get drugs was either petition and sell your right kidney to pharma and, and have them you know, send the drug for free, or it was enroll them on a clinical trial. Um, and again, they're enrolling AZA, that's their standard of care, that's fine. But then they have this option of, hey, you might have a 50% chance of getting that novel therapy. So is it, is it, uh, is it really wrong for them to continue the study from their perspective? Yeah, I think I think if where you are if if you are a patient who walks into a hospital and where you are getting treatment, the you know ven is not accessible. Then I, I I think at that point you can just make the argument that they are getting you know the best yep. standard of care in the control arm that is possible in their country, um, and I think that's a reasonable um, way to proceed. Certainly, yeah, uh, and and I think. You know, saying like you absolutely can't give an anaclax in every other country except the United yeah. States is probably not true. You know, mm -hmm. it is licensed by the EMA. I don't know when exactly it occurred, but you know, the the yeah, there are some countries that can't get it. But the problem, you know, the, the problem UK, with licensing, the problem with licensing uh, is like Health Canada would license and approve venetoclax, but that doesn't mean that they'll fund it. So. It, it, it's it's weird because like yeah they're it's approved but we're not going to pay for it so then they don't have access to it so th I mean that's the reality but I guess the other point to be made is like you can't have it both ways of like okay continue the trial there but then assume that it's going to be applicable at centers that have access to venoclax aka this study is not applicable at all in the United States agreed agreed so okay so and then you know the other um, point I'll, I'll make about the control arm is, well, what about therapies like in CLL, right? Where we know that chlorambucil is not a standard of care, right? But it was studied against venetoclax. It was studied against acalabrutinib and everyone is adopting acalabrutinib and venetoclax in CLL, despite chlorambucil not being a standard of care, a uh, completely unethical standard of care in the United States, right? But why is it okay in CLL for us to all jump on those bandwagons, but then scrutinize it in AML? I think it's just as bad. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just as bad. I think it's mm -hmm. ridiculous, but I don't have as I much mean, of a voice there. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think I mean, I, we shouted it from the rooftops and people were like, stop yeah. making fun of chlorambucil. <laughs> Remember that? You got in an argument with that guy on Twitter about chlorambucil? I got blocked. <laughs> it's my only block on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but I, I, I think it, it's also a fair point too of, you know, some of the other diseases I think that fall into this, you know, I'm not a multiple myeloma expert, but, you know, oh, yeah. um, but they have more latency between their outcomes, right? The disease is slow. The trials have to go on longer before they report outcomes and things like that. But I, I do worry about AML turning into something like CML where, or sorry, CLL, where 
everything is compared against single agent ASA. And then you have a bunch of things that you know are better than single agent ASA, but you don't know what they are head to head. Mm -hmm. And then you're yep. forced to make difficult decisions without a lot of data. Yep. Yeah. But when the FDA approves uh, things in this fashion, there's, there's, you know, the fiduciary duty of the company is to just proceed knowing because the FDA is going to approve it and then it's going to get on our market and then people are going to use it because they're like, well, you know, it's another option. I don't know if it's any better than HMA Ven, but it's another option that I can give my patients. So it's definitely, it, we're definitely put in a, a very precarious situation as clinicians because we have no idea how we're supposed to be treating these patients. Um, Okay, so kind of moving on uh, to, to some other aspects of this, the primary endpoint. Uh, initially, it was overall survival um, because that should be in, uh, the primary endpoint for AML studies, and uh, we talked about that on podcast one, and then it was changed to event-free survival. I just want to read there, because they like put in a rationale for primary endpoint change, which just screams like, we really needed to justify this because... This is probably not ideal. So they said, you know, part of this was sample size estimation that it would allow for a smaller uh, end, probably because at, at that point in the trial, you know, you're sitting at however many patients they had in the study, like 75 in each arm. Now nobody's going to enroll on your trial if the comparator arm is AZA, at least in the U.S., right? Um, so they said EFS more accurately describes the contribution of a novel therapy to clinical benefit by removing the potential confounding effect of oh, post-trial therapies no. and by capturing treatment failure as an event. Collectively, oh. these considerations support the amendment of the protocol to include a primary endpoint of EFS as a meaningful and direct measure of the clinical benefit for the treatment of patients with AML who are ineligible for intensive induction chemotherapy. Bullshit. <laughs> yeah that's bad come on I, like guys. you know what come i'm okay on. with changing the endpoint, but like putting that in there is just like come a giant on. slap in the face like, get out of here <laughs> yeah but you know what a lot of people believe that and that's why we have a podcast like this <laughs> it oh, is Bernie, be nice <laughs> <laughs> It is, it is a fair, I, it, it's so interesting to me that you would make the argument about, um, I mean, I, I agree with you there. It's, it's hard to even, where do you even begin with that argument? Because there are so many problems with it. But the, I would say overarching concern is that overall survival is short in these patients. Mm -hmm. So this is yep. almost like an ideal, you know, a lot of these surrogate endpoints, you see arguments in other hematologic malignancies where, you know, the disease latency is very, very long. But here, I mean, I, I think it's very, very hard argument to make. I agree. I mean, mm -hmm. it's just basically saying, like, you can justify not giving them anything because you're only just looking at EFS here. You don't care about long-term survival, which is the goal. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, uh, so event-free survival, uh, the median, zero months versus zero months. <laughs> How do, how do we explain that? <laughs> I mean, I think it goes into the, the really long time to response with these agents. So yeah. they had, um, uh, if patients didn't respond by 24 weeks, which is your basically your, your six cycle estimated time point, then they were counted as uh, basically not as having that event as being a refractory uh, patient. 
And so their median EFS is less than 50% because the time to response is, is so long. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think the other thing too, is if you look at the figure for event- <laughs> It's <survival>. hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember when I first saw that and it just, I was confused for like a solid 15 minutes. It is just <laughs> such a bizarre figure. It, it looks like when, mm -hmm. you know, you're learning to make a Kaplan-Meier curve and you screw up yeah. the Kaplan-Meier curve and it looks <laughs> stupid and you're like, what's going on here? <laughs> uh, that's um, awesome. But it, it, it's, it's interesting to me because uh, it, it just, um, I mean, the way that the event figure survival was when the vast majority of the patients do not respond within the window and then you censor all of those patients and then you're starting with just small fractions of the patients and then you're looking for the alternative event-free survival. It, it's just mm -hmm. a very odd way to mm -hmm. um, compare two drugs and it heavily biases uh, the response. Or I guess I should say that event-free survival is heavily biased to those who respond in the 12, yes. 24 week period and yep. later responses or what, whatever, or basically you're never going to recover from that. Yep. Yep. Especially when they didn't follow their patients very long. So, yeah. um, the, the event free survival zero versus zero, but the event free survival at 12 months was, was pretty good with the combination 37% versus 12. So this kind of speaks Charlie to your point of there's a subset of patients that seem to be pretty responsive and pretty sensitive and have durable remissions with this therapy. And so we really need to figure out who these patients are. Um, Cause uh, I guess I'll, I'll ask you, Charlie, how much do you think this drug costs per, per, per month? Let, let's, let's, let's try per month. And, um, and then I'll have you guess Venetoclax because that's its comparator, right? So yes. let's, let, let's say, let's just throw out there that safety and efficacy is similar between HMA Ven and Ivo plus HMA. We should then that's default fair. to what is the cost? Because we don't, we don't know which one is better and who cares? So let's just go to something that we objectively have and that is the cost. So let's, let's, let's throw out a number there, Charlie. How much per month do you think Ivocitinib by itself is? Uh, I know I'm going to be way off. I'm going to say $10,000. No, Venetoclax is more than that. <laughs> Venetoclax is about $15,000 unless, unless you uh, commit insurance fraud and you like only give a hundred milligrams, but prescribe a 400 and then you add your azole and boost it. So, but by <laughs> itself, 400 milligrams is about $15,000. Wow. Ivocitinib is $1,000 per day. $30,000 a month. It's oh. double the cost without, you know, double the efficacy or double, you know, the better safety or anything. It is $30,000. And that, that is, uh, so that's a wholesale acquisition cost. That's what we buy the drug for. That's not markups or anything else. So you're probably looking at, you know, once everybody gets their cut and, and whatnot, you're probably looking at 35, you know, potentially $40,000 plus the ASA, plus the visits, plus everything else. It's CAR-T. <laughs> it's it's CAR-T, yeah. And the, the median uh, duration of therapy uh, was what, six, uh, about six months. So that's $180,000 for six months for the median patients. And then some patients obviously stayed on it for, you know, over, over a year. So to Bernie's point, that is CAR-T. It's $400,000, $500,000 uh, per treatment. Venetoclax is not even close to that. 
So if you want to compare apples to apples, again, throat, who cares? Efficacy, whatever. We'll, we'll call them the same. Safety, we'll call them, you know, relatively the same, although we'll get into that. Cost just blows it out of the water. We should not be using this just based off of the cost, not cost effective at all. That's for sure. And, wow. and I will point out here, like the follow-up, the median follow-up in the study is about a year. It's like 12 months. Yeah. And so at the time point where we're saying at 12 months, the survive, the EFS is this, it's like three patients in one yeah, hour or, or six patients or something. I was, like, was going to ask you guys like, that. Okay. Like, when, your media, when your median follow-up is only 11 months, but your median overall survival is 24 months, how, the, how do you calculate that? You know, obviously it's a Kaplan-Meier and it's yeah. all these patients are are uh, censored, right? But like majority of that 24 months is a, a tiny portion of your patients, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. But that being said, the median over, overall survival is still 24 months. This is this is a long uh, overall survival, and you know it's only eight months for for the control arm. So people are going to come out and say there is an overall survival benefit, and not only was there an overall survival benefit. This is a massive overall survival benefit. Normally, these patients should only live, what, 10 to 12 months if you look at any of the, you know, previous ASA. HMA alone, yeah. Yeah, and obviously, you know, HMA with VEN, you're looking at, what was it, 14, 15 months in Vialli A, uh, not IDH. The IDH live, you know, 25 months. 24 months. Right, yeah, yeah. Well, (laughs) there you go. You just stole the thunder there, Bernie. So when you look at that subgroup, the, the overall survival is, again, identical. Mm-hmm. Uh, very long overall survival. So then you go back to cost, uh, $160,000 versus, you know, half of that. And, and quite honestly, we're not using venetoclax for 30 days. A lot of us are, because of the toxicity, we're shortening it to 21 days, 14 days. We're yeah. reducing doses. So um, it's, it's definitely a lot. Not, not that I don't want to defend the cost of venetoclax at all because it's expensive, sure. but it's not even close Ivocinum is ridiculous. What the hell is the matter with these people to charge thirty some thousand dollars? It's just insane. And then you, and then you conduct a trial like this, and, and and want people in the United States who's going to fit the bill for all of this. Uh, and you didn't even study in the United States in a in a, an effective you know comparator arm. Um, and then and then our insurance companies and our premiums and everything we're going to be paying for this. So it's just it's just crappy. All right. Anyway, so, all right, let's talk about, let's, let's round this discussion out and talk about, is there any patient, Charlie, in your practice, you were like, oh yeah, no, this is a perfect candidate. I don't want to use HMA Ven. Uh, this is a perfect candidate for ivocitinib with azacitidine. Yeah. It, I was trying to think about this and I even, I went out and I looked at uh, some of the expert opinions about who they would potentially choose HMA plus ivocitinib in versus uh, HMA venetoclax. And so in my mind, um, you know, we've, we've kind of alluded to a lot of uh, the bigger questions with this study, but so in my mind, ideally, if you treated this patient population with HMA ven, you had a long response, let's say, unfortunately, someone relapses, and then you go to single agent ivocitinib. Mm-hmm. That to me, I, I think the problem is if you give HMA ivocitinib and then okay. the patient relapses, where do you go from there? Yeah, um, good point. Venetoclax and, does not work as a single agent. Right, exactly. It does not. And so... Uh, you know, there there's some weak data where, you know, in sometimes in the MDS setting, we'll add, you know, Venn to AZA and patients who have 
you know, started to fail in HMA and things like that. But mm -hmm. I, I don't think even mechanistically, you can assume that that combination is going to work in that mm -hmm. sequence. And so, I don't know, people said things about uh, if you were concerned because the ivocitinib leads to better neutrophil counts compared to cytopenia no, with no. metaclax, no. like if you were concerned that the patient was going to have an infectious complication. Um, because but of I, the differentiation syndrome that happens. So, right. so yeah, the neutrophils go up. You can even see the graph inside the paper. They go up. I would not consider those to be very functional neutrophils. I would consider that person to still be neutropenic. Um, Bernie and I have been burned multiple times in APLs where you're like, oh no, they got neutrophils and then they get back to remic. <laughs> so yeah, I would I think, not, I would, I would consider them be neutropenic. I, I think that argument is a little bit wild because you're talking about, you're basically saying this patient's probably not going to get in remission for three to four months, right? Median time remission. This yeah. is the median yeah. was like four months. Mm -hmm. So you're like, let me just roll the dice, make sure nothing <laughs> happens in four months Versus let me get them in remission one cycle. Like, yeah, the first cycle of HMA vent blows. You know, these yeah. patients are cytopenic for a while. But I think we're learning how to manage it. We're learning how to mitigate the risk, even in very, very old patients. Yeah. And so I, I, I hear that argument. I just think it's wild. Mm -hmm. So you know what I would treat if, if, let's say, I was completely uncomfortable with HMA vent. You know what I would treat with? Single agent, it's FDA approved, single agent IDH inhibitor. Why would why do you need to add the combination? If you're worried about myelosuppression, why are you adding azacitidine that's going to cause myelosuppression on top of your ivocitinib? Just use a single agent. But again, I would use HMA VEN. Totally agree. And it kind of goes back to your the question you asked in the beginning, Anthony. Does this trial answer the question of doing aza ivo or doing aza mm -hmm. followed by ivo i mean honestly that's a reasonable approach too because mm -hmm. in this trial yep. they didn't provide i mean we didn't even talk about post-protocol therapy here let's talk about it bernie so and i and i didn't even i couldn't even find this you had to show me this in the supplementary appendix and it's sad the post-protocol therapy that these patients got i think it was like two percent of patients in the placebo arm got ivocidinib at relapse two percent of patients that's <laughs> it's ridiculous not in europe that's why I, you did a study in europe <laughs> i that's very smart it said and you know they very make it very clear again hashtag medical writing we allowed crossover of we course we definitely allow crossover well guess what you allowed it but you, nobody got crossover in this study so mm -hmm. that's yeah two, that's so two examples of how important crossover is number one the phase one two of enacitinib with aza versus AZA. This study was a negative study. It didn't show an overall survival benefit. Why? The the, the authors presented, oh, well, it's because they got enacitinib on, on relapse. So because they treated their patients properly in relapse, enacitinib with AZA does not have an overall survival benefit. But in a trial of ivocitinib with AZA, when you don't give proper post-protocol therapy, you have and overall survival benefit. And so a lot of people are saying, oh, well, no, there's just biological differences between IDH1 versus IDH2. Maybe the drugs are different. No, it's it, it, certainly that's possible. Certainly, yes, I agree. There's probably biological differences between IDH1 and 2. But I would argue that it's 1,000% study design of not having post-protocol therapy. That's why your patients only live for seven, eight months. Um, and that's why in the enacitinib aza, there those patients still live 20 some months, um, even if they got you know azacitinib up front because they got 
you know, N on relapse or they got HMA Ven on relapse or they got something on relapse, right? The second example is the Lacewing study, which Bernie, what, what was that study? That was a uh, uh, giltritinib plus Aza versus Aza. Yeah. So, so again, similar, similar thing, no overall survival benefit. Why? Because they got giltaritinib on relapse. Guys, this isn't freaking rocket science. Like, we're medical professionals. Let's use our freaking brains. It's not rocket nothing... appliances. <laughs> oh, man. There's nothing. There's nothing. Oh, this is just. I need a drink. Here, guys. Right. I, I finished my crappy beer. I need to go get another one. BRB. Uh, all right, Charlie. Bernie Bernie left us here. We're, we're lonesome here. So, um <laughs> Uh, anything else about you know post protocol therapy? So only a few, and uh, um, and I was gonna I was gonna have Bernie chime in here too to try to push back, and when he comes back, we'll have him. Um, but um, so the, the the argument though, in from like the counter um, perspective, is there is no there is no standard of care for relapse refractory AML for an eighty year old. Mm-hmm. So how can you how can you then criticize you know, the trial and investigators, um, to not give, you know, certain therapies, you know, I think only 20%, Bernie, was it in the supplement only like 20% even got second line therapy. I just came back and I have no idea what we're talking about. Oh, so we're talking about, (laughs) we're talking about, uh, you know, post protocol therapy. therapy. Yeah. It was like 20% overall got subsequent therapy. Yeah, so I was just I was playing devil's advocate here. Of okay, okay, we, we don't we don't have a standard of care for relapse refractory uh, AML. So how can you how can you argue the to the investigators the eighty percent that didn't give second line therapy? How can you say oh well you didn't provide them with therapy? What the heck are you going to give these patients? Yeah, like yeah, they but, just got ASA. But I would say there's no standard of care. It doesn't mean you don't treat them with anything. <laughs> like yeah. just because it's not a standard of care or like one accepted option doesn't mean you just be like meh. Nothing's fine. <laughs> I mean, at least yeah. in the U.S., right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. It, yeah, I, I think it, it argues, um, I think it's an argument for the Azaven uh, sequential therapy because yeah. you're right. Once you yeah. run out of ammo, you're screwed. there's nothing else to go to. So if you burn it all up front and then there's nothing else there um, and you had one potential good option, but you used it in the first line setting instead, then you know you're i agree with you what do you do then mhm uh, i spilled right, my beer else? oh no <laughs> um, but i did want to bring up a couple things yes so i think yes, we've please. we've pretty much beaten the efficacy portion of this to death right yeah i think Parator so inappropriate especially in the united states not adequate post protocol therapy but i think the safety profile is really intriguing oh, here yeah um, just kind of walking through things. So they saw a differentiation syndrome rate of about 14%, which is mm-hmm. similar, I guess, to the other trials with IDH inhibitors. Um, and Charlie, you kind of, when we talked about this, you pointed this out, you're like, that's kind of low, right? And you were wondering, you know, it occurred is, early too. Is, mm-hmm. is it like a, a population that's maybe biologically more indolent? Mm-hmm. Is it a population that, you know, sat around long ad what were your what were your thoughts again i, I forget yeah I, I i think so it's it, it is interesting some of the things that you look at too you know they divided patients by having a white blood cell count greater than or less than five as well so it kind of so my my big question is 
Um, I agree with Bernie. The rate of differentiation syndrome was similar in both the relapse refractory setting and okay. in the frontline trial that were small, um, but it was lower. And my, my worry was that by sending out the IDH1 testing, so we had to, I'm assuming, I could never find how long it took to get IDH1 testing, but I'm assuming yeah. it had to be at least a week. because that's, that's a good they, question, though. Yeah, um, it would be longer. Company, yeah, probably. Tell us. Yeah, I, I couldn't find it on the in the supplementary appendix. Um, uh, in, in, you know, in BDAML, they were really shooting for one week. Um, and I, I would guess that it was much longer in this mm -hmm. study, um, yeah. but we don't I mean, know. I mean, in practice, I mean, you're right. We, I know, you know, this past month, we've tried to enroll patients in trials, but it's always this decision. Can I wait, you know, one week to get the central testing? Oh, they don't want to take our local testing. So we have to send off a sample. So we have to get another biopsy. Okay. Now we send it off. Oh, they can only be treated on a Tuesday. So we got to mm -hmm. wait another week because of stupid PK draws. <laughs> so now you're looking at like two weeks after initial diagnosis or not even initial diagnosis when they show up to your tertiary yeah. care center. So you're talking months into therapy. These yeah. are completely indolent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I think that's why the differentiation syndrome was low. That My other sense. question that I couldn't, I could never find, and I don't have enough experience with these patients but is there something about IDH1 mutant AML that is more indolent almost as yeah. a definition? Um, mm -hmm. I, and that I, I couldn't find. Uh, I, I think prob it's probably true. Go ahead, Bernie. Well, I, I was going to say the, the fact that it doesn't tend to co-occur yeah. with things like FLT3, but tends to co-occur with NPM1, I think maybe is, is speaks to that. It tends to occur in older patients with lower white counts. So I think... Yeah. Um, that kind of makes sense. And in this study with these patients, not having a high proportion of these, um, other, you know, tyrosine kinase mutations, maybe we did just select for those indolent disease biology, mm -hmm. IDH patients. We mm -hmm. have seen some that have been aggressive, but yeah, you know, it's definitely not the norm. And, and these drugs don't work in those patients. No, we, I mean, in no. practice, you wouldn't wait that long. No. And that's, no. that's, I think one point of the study here. 100%. Sure. What else you got, Bernie? What other so, goodies you got? Weird, weird toxicity differences between yeah. the two that I, I just thought it'd be, you know, better tolerated. We'd see QT prolongation and dif differentiation syndrome. But they also saw a higher rate of neutropenia. Um, and, and this was even grade three or higher neutropenia in ivocinibus, 27% versus 16% grade three or higher. That's, that's a, pretty large difference. I thought you wanted to use it in patients that uh, can't, <laughs> you don't want to be neutropenic, right? <laughs> I know. And that's that's kind of why I brought that up. Um, the other concept too, it did cause GI side effects too. 41% uh, rate of any grade vomiting versus 26%. Yeah. That's, that's not pleasant. Um, <laughs> QT prolongation was higher. Um, it caused thrombocytopenia at a higher frequency. And then there was a higher bleed Bleeding. rate at 47%. Yep. Um, no, sorry, 41% versus 29% any grade mm -hmm. bleeding. And these are probably minor bleeds, but still, you know, what the heck is going on mm -hmm. uh, with that, that difference in, in bleed rates? I think that's very interesting. Mm -hmm. But somehow they had less, uh, more transfusion independence at some point, but it, well, you have to wonder what went on before you became yeah. transfusion that, independent, right? 
I think that's misleading. And again, 100%. great medical oh, well, writing. It up. Great medical writing, right? Like this is the proportion of patients who achieve transfusion independence, which is basically another way of saying the proportion of patients who achieve a CR is higher <laughs> with this arm compared to this arm, right? Because you have to achieve a CR. So I think that's a, a, a touch misleading. But if you look at, I think you pointed this out in the supplementary appendix, um, people who, regardless of baseline transfusion status, um, yeah. The proportion of patients who needed or, or overall needed transfusion or, or about the same. Yeah, it was about the same. It was like 60 versus yeah. 50%. Yeah. But that's like the end point. What I want to know I is know. how was this therapy tolerated in between before the four to six months that took them to get to a CR? How many transfusions were they requiring? Because people think, oh, you know, you're going to make these patients transfusion independent. They're not going to have to come into our infusion center all the time like the venetoclax patients. Like, well, I don't know Maybe. that because you never said that. And according to your calculations, Bernie, the thrombocytopenia, the bleeding and all that other stuff to me says these patients probably needed some blood transfusions along <laughs> the way. I don't know. Call me crazy. <laughs> they, they did have to give them credit. And this is much better than the oral AZA data that we talked about with quality of life. They did assess quality of life here. Yes. yes. Um, and they didn't just assess it when patients aren't on therapy like they did with yeah. oral ASA maintenance. They actually assessed it in the middle of the cycle on day 15 um, for some of the cycles, which I thought was was promising. Mm -hmm. um, and they showed, you know, some trends towards improved quality of life throughout, which, again, it's always hard to say, is this because they feel great or is it because they're in remission and so i think to truly know is the quality of life better with ivo aza versus ven aza you have mm -hmm. to compare the yeah. two agents mm -hmm. and, and compare quality of life in that study because this just could just reflect i got more patients in remission ergo they felt better and that makes sense mm -hmm. so charlie the next steps here are to to just add all these therapies together right uh, Bernie wants HMA Ven. Others want, you know, this ivacitinib. So why don't we just throw them all together? <laughs> well, we're certainly, I, I think that trial is already ongoing. Oh, no. oh um, God. And, you know, it, it is interesting. It, I think that, <laughs> so certainly we're going to run into toxicity issues. I mean, yeah. where do you even begin with this combination? Mm -hmm. So, I think toxicity is going to be a major issue. And I think just like all of hematologic malignancies, you have the philosophical debate of everything up front versus sequential therapy. And you really need a well-designed clinical trial to answer that question. Mm -hmm. And so probably mm -hmm. what we'll get is a single arm trial with triple <laughs> therapy um, and you know, probably a high response rate Yep. And lots of toxicity. And that's going to be what we have to work with for the next mm -hmm. little while. And, and potentially a reduction in overall survival because you used all your eggs in one basket up front and now you've got nothing on relapse. Yeah. But it'll be a single arm study of superhuman indolent disease biology patients <laughs> yeah. Yeah. at a couple centers or, yeah. or maybe one. And yeah. they're going to look phenomenal. Yeah. Yes. You know, one point that should be made, though, is uh, at least from a pharmacologic or biochemical uh, perspective, HMA with ibocitinib is antagonistic. So remember, Bernie said, yeah. you know, 5-hydroxyglutarate uh, gets super upregulated. That is what causes the, you know, downstream effects of the sensitization of BCL2. Well, so if you grab ibocitinib and reduce 
two hydroxyglutarate. Um, yeah. Two hydroxyglutarate. Yeah. Well, now you're no longer prime for BCL two. Um, I mean, you know, it's kind of like the you know we we love our antifungals. It's like azoles yeah. and ampho or other agents, right? Like you know, sequencing of these things. Are they antagonistic? Are they synergistic? You're right. They could be completely antagonistic. Yep. I, I mean, I think it's, I think it's fun. like triple therapy, totally fine. If you want to study it in a true randomized controlled yeah. trial, because yeah. right now yeah. you have, uh, you have a standard of care. And so I, I think if we're trying to make triple therapy, the new standard of care, you have to compare it mm-hmm. to the old standard of care. It's, it's yeah. not, it's not rocket science. Like you said, totally. Two, so two points on that. Number one, I think triple therapy makes sense in a curative setting to try. In a, this is palliative therapy, guys. These are 70, 80-year-olds. You're not curing them. I hate to say it. This is palliative therapy. Um, like to, to Charlie's point, you're going to see more toxicities, even if they're not high grades. These are still patients that are going to be on triple therapy altogether for a very long time, potentially, uh, as opposed to one drug at a time over that, that sort of same length of period. Um, so You know what I do, what I would do if I was a patient? Um, yeah. They should make this the randomized trial. You compare HMA plus VEN plus IVO versus HMA plus VEN plus donating a car to that patient every <laughs> single month for 12 there months. You go. I would have 12 awesome vehicles or I'd buy like some, I'd buy a Ferrari or something. You could with ivocitinib. You yeah. literally could with Ferrari yeah. these days. What three hundred grand? There you go. Yeah. yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> That'd be amazing. And then yeah, I had a I, second point, but I don't remember what it was. Because Bernie <laughs> interrupted me. <laughs> Sorry. That's all right. I'm on my second beer and I spilled it, and you know it's kind of a mess over here. Can't even read my own notes. Um, but you know I think overall. I think we've sort of beaten this to death. Um, I think we did a, a good job going over the background. Charlie was was brilliant in going through this study, breaking down some of the flaws. You know, I think I think our conclusion overall is this didn't answer our question. We mm-hmm. wanted to know is giving Ivo Aza better than giving Aza followed by that targeted therapy followed by. Ivocidinib, or is it just as good as our current standard of care? And you can't answer that question. So basically, nope. this to me, this was like a phase two study that didn't really yep. tell me much, but cool, study mm-hmm. it again. Yep. It t- I mean, to me, it tells me it's an effective therapy. There's no doubt that this therapy is effective. What I don't know is, is it, is it more effective? Is it safer than my current standard of care, HMA Ven? Yeah. And again, it's a phase two. I, at this point, it's a phase two. At this point, I don't care. What I do know is this, this is exorbitantly more expensive than my current standard of care. That is a fact. That is 100% certainty that it is double, if not higher, uh, the cost. And so for me, uh, you know, if this is Shark Tank, I'm out. It's a no from you, dog. <laughs> All right, Charlie, any any last uh, last words? Um, can I add in one last thing about yeah. the molecular analysis out of the mm. supplementary appendix oh, yes. that I think was really interesting. Yes. Um, so in figure, I guess, uh, supplementary five, figure mm-hmm. B, I thought this was really interesting. Um, they show the co-mutations and oh. for some reason, all of the bad actors were overexpressed in the placebo arm, which is is interesting oh. from a... Um, just, I mean, the, the patients were truly randomized. So yeah. it's very, I, 
didn't even see that. Ooh, um, that is a good find, Charlie. Yeah, and I mean, in in some sense, you know, these patients received placebo, right? So they and they did not receive post protocol therapy. So <laughs> we're we're investigating predictive markers for poor response to IDH one mutations. But for example, RUNCS one. <laughs> So the frequency in the placebo ASA group is near 40%, and it's less than 20 in the in the uh, experimental arm. And then I was looking for some of the you know receptor tyrosine kinases that were known mm -hmm. to be bad actors yeah. in the other ones. And the only one I see is NRAS, but it's uh -huh. it's twice the difference between the two is roughly two times. It's about oh, wow. five percent versus ten percent. Wow, only five percent too. Yeah. And probably to your point, we were selecting very indolent yep. disease and those receptor types. So you're exactly right. It's less than what you would expect just having all comers of AML. Um, so it's just, I don't know. Wow. That was an interesting point as well. No, great that's a find. Wonder, that's a great find. And a, I think a, a wonderful point for us to close out on here, right? Yeah. Bernie? <laughs> You do us, you say our goodbyes. It's, it's been fun. I think, uh, this was a great discussion, Charlie. Thank you for, for coming on the podcast. Um, it was a true pleasure. We'll have to have you, uh, back on sometime, uh, yeah. in the future. Thanks. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Thanks so much. It was All great right. With you guys. Cheers, everybody. Cheers. Ciao.